0: A vision from Joshua the high priest. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts. If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts and i will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day in that day declares the lord of hosts every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree this is the word of the lord
1: thanks becky becky signed up for that but a while ago but how appropriate that a lawyer would read that passage <laughs> courtroom scene boys and girls can head out to story keepers and to nursery as the kids are heading out let's uh, pray together for god's help to think about the passage heavenly father thank you for your word Thank you for this chapter, one that's perhaps uh, somewhat unfamiliar to some of us, but uh, has so much to encourage us with, bless us with, give us food for thought. Uh, we pray that uh, no matter what kind of week we've had and no matter uh, where we stand in our journey of faith, that this would be a time where you speak into our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit and change us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. New York Times had an article yesterday by Melissa Kirsch entitled True Stories, Why Are So Many Drama Series Based on Real-Life Events? And Kirsch was reacting to the flood of what she calls docudramatic reimaginations of real life events that have overtaken streaming platforms of late. And as she listed a number of examples of these docudramas, it struck me that quite a few of them do involve real life stories of courtrooms and defendants and prosecuting attorneys. This trend towards docudramatic reimagination, she says, actually began in response to the massive success of The People versus O.J. Simpson, the uh, American crime story, back in 2016. She writes how writers have been drawn since then to these dramatizations of real life because it allows them to get creative, to to heighten moments of drama, to go deeper into the psychology of the character and even speculate a little. But Kirsch in the article also wonders why such shows are so popular with audiences. Why do we watch shows whose endings We already know. Where's the appetite for novelty and surprise? And so she asked that question to Brooks Barnes, who reports on Hollywood for the Times, and his answer was this. People, despite what they say, prefer stories that they know. And so in courtroom docudramas, even though we know what the verdict is going to be, we don't seem to tire of watching such shows because, well, People prefer the stories that they know. This morning we come to Zechariah 3, which, uh, as you will have picked up in the reading, is indeed a courtroom scene, uh, actually a heavenly courtroom scene. People do prefer the stories that they know, but sadly, many Christians don't know well this story. It's a chapter that really deserves to be one of the best known and perhaps most preached chapters in the Bible. But perhaps because it's buried here in this somewhat tricky to interpret Old Testament prophetic book, it's nowhere near as well known as it should be. But the reason everyone should pay particular attention to it this morning is because it addresses a question that I'm guessing every one of us has asked at some point in our life, and which is this, how do I get past my past? How do I get past my past? Or how do... I come to terms with the mistakes, the hurts, the breakups, the pain of my life up to this point. And Zechariah 3 is going to approach that question, but from a slightly different angle, as it addresses this related question, how do sinful people stand before a holy God? We're going to seek answers to those questions from this passage under four headings, which many of which I have borrowed slash stolen from my good friend Gary Miller in, uh, in Australia now. So here are four headings. Number one, the putrid priest. Number two, the magnificent makeover. Number three, the, the servant shoot. And number four, the fruit of forgiveness. Like last week, the first point is going to be much longer than the others, so don't despair. Also that we might see what we need to do to get past our past. Before we dive into the first point, just a reminder of the context of uh, where we are with this book of Zechariah. Prophet Zechariah was writing this in 520 BC, about 20 years after the Israelites had returned to their homeland from 70 years of exile in Babylon. At this point, things had not gone as anticipated, and so the people are disappointed, they're demoralized, they're fed up. And exactly as that person sounds out there. And as a result, God had sent Zechariah to comfort and encourage the people. And he does so in the 14 chapters of this book through eight visions, two sermons, and two oracles. And Zechariah 3 contains the fourth vision. And it's worth pointing out that, that these visions are intentionally organized in a concentric pattern working from the outside in. You may have noticed over recent weeks as we've been going through this book that that each one has a narrower focus than the one before. So Vision 1's focus was international in scope, with God dealing with the nations of the world. Vision 2's focus then was national in scope, focusing on Israel as the people of God. And then Vision 3 last week... Zechariah's camera lens narrows even further to what was local in Jerusalem and the temple. We're going to see in future weeks how the later visions then start to move outward again in in their focus. But here in Zechariah 3, we have the fourth vision, which comes right kind of into the very heart of the matter as it takes us into the heavenly courtroom where we find on trial the Jewish high priest the one who was responsible to carry out the most important sacrifices each year in the Holy of Holies in the temple for the sins of the people. This vision really is the centerpiece of the series of visions, focused on the key issue of what was necessary for God to be able to dwell with his people then and now. How do sinful people stand before a holy God? So we come to our first point, the putrid priest. Look with me at the opening verses 1 to 2. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire?" And the previous visions we've looked at already, Zachariah was never shy to just kind of come out with questions when he was wondering something. Well, what's this? And what's this? And where are you going? But but here in the fourth vision, he doesn't ask any questions, presumably because he knows all the characters here and the symbolism of what's happening. So we're introduced back to the first character right away as Joshua the high priest. Joshua was a real person. Because this is a vision, he's not actually there, but he would have been a contemporary of Zechariah, perhaps even a friend. Being high priest at this point in Israel's history would not have been a terribly arduous task since the temple hadn't yet been rebuilt. But everything that the high priest was and his responsibilities would have been perfectly understood by Zechariah. Here was a priest who represented God to the people and represented the people to God. And so then in the vision, we're told that Joshua is standing before the second character here, the angel of the Lord, whom we've met already several times in Zechariah. He's what we might think of as the chief angel who is able to speak on behalf of the Lord. And then we're introduced thirdly to Satan or literally to the Satan because Satan means accuser. This is the accuser in the courtroom, the accuser who's the prosecuting attorney standing here ready to accuse Joshua. So as the vision begins, it's quickly apparent that we're in a courtroom, but from what we can tell, this court case is already in session. We've walked into the middle of something that got started before we arrived. So the first words we hear are not from the accuser, but seem to be in response to something that he's already said. The first words we hear are forceful words from the Lord, through the angel of the Lord, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. God rebukes Satan in no uncertain terms. Notice in verse 2 that the, the divine name Lord is used three times. That's just to emphasize and underline who's really in charge here that Satan doesn't have a chance in hell of impeding God's power and his purposes. God is not going to be derailed from his commitment to his people. A people, he tells the accuser, he's chosen. And a people, he tells the accuser, he's rescued. God refers to Joshua here as a brand or a burning stick plucked from the fire. And the reason he says that is because Joshua, as the high priest here, represented the people who had been sent into exile, but now who had been rescued from exile. The exile had looked like it was the end for God's people. God's great project of redemption seemed over as Israel had been carted off to Babylon. Just as the embers were about to give up their final glow, God pulled his people from the ashes to rekindle the flame. This brand... This stick indicated that the story is far from over. The people of Israel might have looked like charred sticks, but God is not going to allow Satan to snuff out the last spark. By snatching them from the flames of exile, God has revealed his commitment to his people and demonstrated that, as ever, his grace is greater than their guilt. So at this point in the narrative, we, we, we don't know what the case for the prosecution is. All we've been told at this point is that Satan, the accuser, is there to accuse Joshua. But it's at this point that we're made aware that, that God has categorically rebuked Satan, but Satan's central piece of evidence still needs to be presented. And it turns out that in Satan's case against Joshua, he has plenty to work with. So we see in verse 3, now Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Just notice the escalation from verse 1 to verse 3. In verse 1, we're simply told that Joshua is standing before the angel. But now that statement is repeated in verse 3. But with some critical and devastating information added to it, Joshua is clothed with filthy garments. Now, what Zechariah describes here as filthy in terms of the clothing, he's not just suggesting that somehow, you know, Joshua got mud splashed on his garments. This is worse than you're probably thinking because the word for filthy here is a word associated with excrement and vomit. That Joshua is wearing garments smeared with excrement and vomit. Imagine you come to church one Sunday and just before the passing of the peace, you look down and there's this massive coffee stain on your shirt and you're going, I don't believe it leaky coffee travel mug again and that but then more importantly it's just at that point where people sitting in front of you are about to turn around and you're realizing well how am i going to how am i going to do this because it's just embarrassing right you've got this huge coffee stain on your shirt but imagine if you had excrement smeared all over your clothes not a nice thought for a sunday morning that we'd all come to church with excrement all over our clothes but so the people sitting around you they don't need to turn around to see what's going on, because they can smell it. That's bad enough, but Joshua's situation is way beyond embarrassing here, because from the way the vision's presented, we're actually to observe that Joshua's day in court coincides with the Day of Atonement. That is the one day of the year when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple to offer sacrifices for all the sin's people. How do we know that? Well, it's really because the rest of the year, the high priest did what all the priests did, but not on this one day. On this one day was when the high priest had his, his yearly annual responsibility on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, we learned that there were strict rules for the high priest that he had to follow in order to enter into God's presence in the Holy of Holies to make the sacrifices. And many of those rules concerned his clothing. The high priest had to first take off his regular clothes, take a bath, put on the priestly clothes, enter the Holy of Holies, perform the sacrifices, exit the Holy of Holies, take off the priestly clothes, put on his regular clothes again. And the specific clothes that the high priest was to wear were described in great detail back in Exodus 28. They were embroidered, decked with jewels, gold throughout. They're they're laid out all the way down to the the linen designer underwear he was to wear in case the priest bore guilt and died on, on duty. I mean, the whole outfit's laid out. And it was to reflect the holiness and the glory of the God into whose presence the high priest was entering. The problem here in Zechariah 3 is that this high priest smelled like a public porta potty on a late Sunday afternoon after a weekend-long music festival. There was no way such a putrid priest could enter into the presence of God. There was no way such a putrid priest could make sacrifices on behalf of the people. The problem for us is that here, this wasn't just about Joshua. This was about the people. Joshua represented the people. He symbolizes us. The excrement, the vomit, covered garments of this putrid priest were intended as a picture of our sin and of our guilt before a holy God. Now, if this all seems like a world away and an eternity ago and you're struggling to see, well, how does this connect to my life? Let me try to help. Remember I said at the beginning that this passage really addresses a question that all of us ask at some point, how do I get past my past? There's one part of the vision so far that I'm guessing we can connect with. It's the accuser. Because all of us know what it is to hear the incessant voices of accusation in our heads. I can't believe you did that. You'll never be good enough. Well, you really messed up this time, didn't you? And those accusations, we feel, are often sadly the great drivers of how we try to live, as well as just crippling us, adding layer upon layer of guilt in our lives. One of the challenges for us here, I think, is that we often confuse false guilt with real guilt. Sometimes the things that worry us the most, are the things that actually are least important, And the things that worry us the least are actually the things that are most important. Our consciences have a strange way of distorting our guilt. I can find myself feeling not guilty about things that I should feel guilty about, about being self-centered, being self-righteous, being dishonest, being unloving, and so on. But then there are other things we do feel guilty about that we have no reason to feel guilty about at all. Here's a somewhat off the subject example. But you know, when you fly into many countries in the world, at the airport after you collect your, your luggage, to exit, you have to go through this customs section. Some of you have done this, where there's a corridor if you've got nothing to declare, and there's a corridor if you've got something to declare. Every time I walk through the nothing to declare channel, I have these feelings of guilt. Even, even if I do, as I'm walking, I do this exercise of mentally going through the contents of my suitcase, knowing that I've got nothing to declare, I still feel as guilty as if I'm smuggling drugs into the country or something. <laughs> And so I don't know where to look. Do I just keep my eyes in the cart? Do I look straight ahead of me at the exit door? Do I smile at the customs officer? If I smile here, might she think, oh, he does he might have something to declare here? Do I just do I eyeball them and try to look hard, in which case they definitely will think I've something to hide? Our consciences can be a very poor guide to whether we're actually guilty or not. That feeling guilty and being guilty are actually two different things. But Zechariah 3 is telling us that there is such a thing as real guilt. It's not imaginary. There's a legitimate reason why we need to ask how we can get past our past. Because in and of ourselves, whether we are willing to admit it or not, God says, we're filthy. We're unfit for the presence of God. And deep down, I think we, we know that. Because that's why we spend so much energy trying to justify ourselves and to excuse ourselves and to compare ourselves favorably to other people because we're desperately trying to find a way out from the real guilt. We failed to love God with heart and soul and strength and mind. We've failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. So God doesn't rebuke Satan here because there's no weight to the accusations. He knows that there's weight God doesn't minimize the situation. He doesn't try to blame the, 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 the filth on the fact that the light's shining in the window a certain way. He doesn't compare Joshua favorably to all those pagan priests who must have had even more excrement on their garments. He acknowledges that Joshua is in the wrong. He has excrement covered garments. He knows that Satan has a point. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon uh, puts it. He says, Truly, dear friend, If Satan wants to accuse us, any pages of our history, any hour of our day will furnish him material for his charges. Yesterday you were impatient, the day before you were proud, another day you were slothful, on another angry. Oh, what a den of unclean birds the human heart is. If the old accuser wants reason for accusation, he may indeed find as many as he wills and continue to accuse as long as he ever pleases, for we are all together as an unclean thing, end quote. All of which is portrayed here by the putrid priest. Now that's all very sobering, perhaps even depressing, but that bad news makes what comes next even better good news. Because what comes next is this magnificent makeover, verses 4 to 5. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. The Lord had rebuked Satan not because the accusation of sin was unwarranted. He'd rebuked Satan because God himself is going to deal with this sin. And so the angel of the Lord gives this command to remove the soiled, filthy garments. It's a stunning picture of how God categorically, once and for all, takes our sin and the guilt of our sin from us. This is no mere cosmetic exercise. The angel doesn't tell Joshua, well, just try to cover up the mess. You know, it wouldn't have been enough for, to put a, 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 gar, a clean garment over the top of it. He might have looked clean, but the stink's still going to be there, which is the reality when you and I try to deal with our sin by covering up, by pointing to the good things that we've done in contrast to the bad or trying to compare ourselves favorably to someone else. You know, oh, well, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than so and so. It can fool people for a while, but sure enough, the stink hasn't gone away. It's still there. That no good deeds can deal with the stink of our bad deeds, which is why God says here, get the garment off him. Take it off. I'm going to deal with it. But look what happens next. God doesn't just remove the filthy garment, does he? He then clothes Joshua with clean, pure vestments. It appears that God isn't just satisfied to forgive sin. He's going to clothe us with a righteousness that causes him to delight in us, love us, cherish us. And at this point, Zechariah, as we've seen him do in previous visions, gets all excited, and he can't help but get involved in his own vision, and he shouts, give him a hat too. And I I say hat here not to be cheeky or or disrespectful, but because the word here actually, uh, which ESV says, turban, is a different word to the one used in the high priest's turban back in Exodus 28. It may refer to the same thing, but it's not completely clear. But what's important to Zechariah, and why he blurts it out is that in this vision, he's now seen a fully decked out high priest ready to do his God-ordained priestly duty to atone for the people's sin for the first time in 70 years. It's a truly marvelous makeover. Now, the question, of course, is how, how could God do this? What ground was there for the angels' actions here? Or in other words, on what basis could Joshua and the people be forgiven their sin and clothed in purity and righteousness just like that. That's the question from our vantage point, given our past and acknowledging, if we will, the filthiness of our own sin. How, how could God ever truly delight in us? Zachariah's vision gives us the answer And our third point, the servant shoot, verses 6 to 9. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you will rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are, are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Angel of the Lord speaks again. He essentially tells Joshua to get on with being a proper high priest, to be godly. And if he is so, he'll have the privilege of guarding and keeping the temple, as well as actually having access to this heavenly court. But then the angel himself seems to get a bit more excited as he takes matters up a notch here with his here now, followed by a series of beholds. What's the angel so excited about? Well, he tells Joshua and his associates that they are literally men of good omen, or as the ESV here puts it, they are a sign. A sign of what? They're a sign of how God is going to deal with all this sin. A sign of the branch, or as I'm referring to him here, the servant shoot. And we're going to see this title again in Zechariah 6, where we're told that this shoot or this branch is a king, but he's no ordinary king prophet Jeremiah refers to this branch as well. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah 3314 to 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. The shoot or the branch is a king in the royal line of David. But what Zechariah adds to Jeremiah's testimony, however, is that this, this shoot, this branch will be a servant who will fulfill the priestly role of dealing with our sins. The angel then introduces into the vision a a stone which will be set before Joshua with seven eyes or some translations say facets. The precise meaning of the stone is debated, but we're told that it's inscribed by God and it would serve as a reminder of God's promise to, quote, remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That as God had removed the filth from the high priest He's going to do the same for all his people in a single day. That is on the ultimate day of atonement. And suddenly, if it hasn't been already clear, it becomes clear now that the key to all of this is going to be Jesus. As we saw recently in our series in the New Testament book of Hebrews, Jesus comes and one of his many roles is to come as the high priest who would offer the final sacrifice for sin once and for all. He would be the priest, he would be the sacrifice, offering himself, dying on the cross in our place to deal with our sin completely. That actually also helps us explain Jesus' name. You may recall from the Christmas story accounts in the Gospels that Mary and Joseph didn't get to choose their son's name as is normal for most parents, right? That his name was given to them by an angel. His name was to be Jesus, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, meaning the Lord saves. Because Jesus would come as the greater Joshua, the great high priest who is the servant shoot, who 500 years after Zachariah's vision would on one single day make the sacrifice once and for all in payment for our sin. So that it's in Jesus that all our sins are completely forgiven. It's in Jesus that our guilt is dealt with once and for all. It's in Jesus that we're clothed with his righteousness so that God the Father simply delights in us. He delights in you. He loves you, and nothing could stop that because of what Jesus has done for all who put their trust in him. And if we're able to get past our past like that, it enables us to move forward with hope and peace and joy into the future. Now, just in case we need any convincing that this is what Jesus has achieved for us, God actually gave a complementary vision to this one, to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. It's actually the same vision that I referenced last Sunday from Revelation 7, but let me read on from verse 9 into verse 10 this week. Here's what John sees. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That in John's vision, as a result of the ministry of Jesus, our great high priest, this time it's not just the high priest who's getting dressed up, but all of God's people who have put their trust in him. They're all clothed in white, white robes. That what God did for Joshua was simply the dry run for the real thing. And then lastly, briefly, the the fruit of forgiveness, our fourth point. Just as the angel gave marching orders to Joshua after he had been reclothed to be godly, to guard the temple. In some ways, it's no different for us. We are to live now differently as a result of having been reclothed. So look at verse 10 here in Zechariah 3. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, what's all that about? Horticultural advice? No, elsewhere, elsewhere in the Old Testament, the phrase to come under his vine and under his fig tree is, is a, a phrase intended to convey a picture, an image of peace and prosperity. And so he's saying there's there's peace and prosperity on offer to every single person as a result of what Jesus achieved on that single day. I actually think this is one of the most beautiful pictures in the entire Bible of evangelism because that's what he's saying. It's an invitation to people we know to come and share in the security and the satisfaction we've found as as they've been enabled to, to get past their pasts. But... That invitation, you and I know, is only really going to be of interest to our friends and family to the extent that they, they see something attractive in our lives. I think that's why the Apostle Paul uses clothing imagery as he presents the, the ongoing Christian life through this lens of, of clothing, as he instructs us in Colossians 3 to put off certain things, to put on certain things. Our growth group was looking at this a few weeks ago as we've been going through Colossians, and we're struck by just how practical Paul is as he tells us to put off things like anger and wrath and malice and slander, and to put on as God's chosen ones, there's the chosen language used for us, holy and beloved, to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, love. Why should we be putting off certain things and putting on certain things? because we want our, as it were, fashion accessories to fit with our new wardrobe. Now that we've been clothed in white as a result of the ministry of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so it's that fashion fruit, if we could call it that, flowing from our forgiveness that will make our invitation to share in the security and satisfaction of what we found. It's, it's that that will make it all the more attractive. But the first step, however, is to get past your past. Zechariah 3 says Jesus has done everything you need to enable you to do that. Black spot on the wall of a castle in Germany once bore eloquent testimony to the truth of this chapter. Wartburg Castle is where Martin Luther was taken for refuge after his heroic stand at the Council of Worms. Luther was immensely productive during this period but he also felt himself suffering at the hands of Satan the accuser. He wrote to his friend Philip Melanchthon on May the 24th, 1521 about a spiritual depression he'd been experiencing one in which he had dreamed that Satan had appeared with a long scroll on which his many sins were written with care, and then each one read out one by one by one. And all the, way, all the while, Satan mocking Luther's pathetic desire to serve God, assuring him that all was said and done, he would surely end up in hell. Luther was in spiritual agony until at last he jumped up and he cried, It is all true, Satan, and many more sins which I have committed in my life which are known to God only. But write this at the bottom of your list. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. And then reportedly, grabbing an inkwell from his table, Luther threw it at the devil, who thus fled, leaving the black spot on the wall that bore testimony to Luther's deliverance. Friends, despite what we may say, we do prefer the stories that we know. And now that we know a little better the Zechariah 3 story, let me encourage us to keep coming back to it as a way to keep past our pasts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a great high priest you are. What a savior you are that you would come and do all that was necessary so that the garments of our sin, our putrid sin, our filthy garments of our guilt could be lifted from us. And we would be clothed with your righteousness so that our heavenly father delights in us, dotes on us, loves us as his sons and daughters. Lord, we pray that this is real ammunition for us to deal with our pasts, to deal with our real guilt, to know that it is real, that we have done wrong, but that there is forgiveness for it all. Drive that down deep into our hearts, minds, and souls, we pray, for we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.